You are listening to the Magnetic Marketing Marketing Secret Gold Members Only Podcast. Next principle, real important. Now, not later. This is a biggie for a lot of reasons. Because it's the key difference between poor people and rich people. Rich people get paid for the work before they do it. Poor people get paid for the work after they do it. That's why the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. Because the poor are getting paid late, the rich are getting paid early. If you're getting paid early, you've got money. Real, I mean, real working poor people, think about their existence, because it's an analogy. They go work all week or for two weeks. Then they get paid. Why? Because we, the employers, want the use of the money for the two weeks. We're smarter about money than they are. So they work for a week or two weeks, then they get paid. They're chasing their bills, and they're buying under the worst possible circumstances. They buy their groceries by the day. They buy everything by the day. They pay the highest prices. They pay the highest interest. We are paid before we do the work. We got the use of the money. We got cash. Cash is king. We can buy right. We can buy big drums if we want to. We can get better prices. We can pay lower interest because we can put more down, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So you want to get paid before, not after. Early, not late. The whole concept to me of invoicing, I did it for like a year in business, and I quickly figured out, bad idea. You know? I've done the work. Now I'm invoicing. Now I'm waiting. How about eliminate waiting? <laughs> now, not later. A whole lot of businesses, part of their problem. Now, forget the working poor, go to the small business guy. A whole lot of them are in trouble for the same reason. They can never get ahead because they're always getting the money behind. They're always late. Because everybody's always late paying them. Our business in the speaking business, a very good friend of mine, he insists on invoicing. Fees and expenses. Now, this used to be the way everybody did it, by the way. At any one given time, he's paid, think about this, 30 to 50 grand of American Express bills for travel that he hasn't yet gotten back, and he's running up another 50 on the Amex, and somebody is being paid in his office to keep track of all that and chase these people to get him to pay for it, and these are expense reimbursements. There isn't even any profit in it. And who's he work for? General Motors, GE. Do they really need Al Schwartz to be their bank? No, but they'll let him be if he's dumb enough to do it. They plan on that. Net 30 means net 90. Al Lowry used to have a sign in his office that said, we shall pay no bill before it's time. <laughs> Well, let me tell you something. You don't want to be the guy invoicing Al. That's a real bad position to be in, see, because the sign has another sign. Right. 
So you want to get paid before you do the work. Mm -hmm. You want to structure. It's why prepaid was so good in chiropractic. And it's such a shame more chiropractors won't do it. And you want to know something else about prepaid for chiropractors? It's better for the patient. You know why? Compliance. Compliance. They prepay for $7,000 worth of care. They might show up. They might actually do the exercise you tell them to do because they're so heavily invested. Good deal for the patient. Best reason to do it, good deal for the doctor. So get your money early, not late. Look at how you can be paid long before you deliver, not when you deliver, and certainly not after you deliver. You'll be a happier camper. Mm -hmm. Just one question. Supposing you're doing work that's coming, say, to an agent or subcontracting, where they aren't going to get paid overall. Sorry. Uh, uh, supposing you're working to an agent. No Supposing you're working to an agent where. It may be on, but we got nothing. I got one up here. Give him this one. Hello. Oh, we're on. There you are. There There's you are. two switches on the mic. Okay. Okay. Uh, supposing you're working, say, say as a speaker, and you're working and from a bureau, and the bureau is saying, "Well, we won't get paid," and and so on, like that way. So, how would you put it that way? I'd get rid of the bureau. <laughs> well, I mean that's my answer, and I mean Kit and I have this conversation all the time, and he's well, you know, and it, but he gets a lot of business from bureaus, and see the trade you make. I mean, I'm giving you a simplistic answer to a complicated problem, but, but here, here's the deal. When you have any layers, let's genericize it now for everybody. When you have any layers between you and the person giving you money, you got problems. Right? You have vulnerabilities in your business. And you have bigger problems than the one you just identified. Okay. That's bad. But what's worse is you are dependent on someone else to feed you who may be happy feeding you today, but may not be happy feeding you tomorrow. What happens if their brother-in-law decides to do what you do? What happens if they decide to do what you do? Hey, this is so good. He's making so much money. Any nitwit can stand up there and do this. I'll do it. Mm -hmm. What happens if somebody else comes along and gives them 35% instead of 15? What happens if, say, so the trade-off, and, and the positives, we, we don't need to enumerate those for the rest of the group. There's always positives. But you're trading away control of your destiny. And it's a bad trade to make. Now, do you go home and fire them tomorrow? No, I don't suggest that. But I suggest that you create a plan to wean yourself off of them and take control of your marketing and your direct relationships with clients as quickly and aggressively as possible. Manufacturers who sell through stores or distributors and have no contact with their end user they're vulnerable. Oh, I'm selling a lot of stuff through Walmart. Yeah. But what happens 
There's a whole lot of people who were selling a lot of stuff through Kmart. Now they ain't selling a lot of stuff through Kmart. See, because they couldn't control Kmart screwing it all up. Somebody's selling a whole lot of stuff through McDonald's. They just closed 300 restaurants. This CEO managed to screw up McDonald's. <laughs> I mean, you would think that would be impossible, wouldn't you? No. So what, I mean, too many things can happen at Walmart. Now, Walmart's a great account. Do you want to sell through Walmart? Sure, but you, QVC. Ton of money to be made on QVC, but the real fallacy in the deal is you have no control over the end customer. So it's my real objection. It's a double whammy in MLM. It's my, and I'm not philosophically opposed to MLM, but I think people ought to understand the vulnerabilities. The, war, the thing about MLM, you're, you've got it at both ends. You don't control the distributors and you don't control the vendor. You go to bed every night and neither one of them can disappear by tomorrow morning. Right. You want to be in control if you can. And so a manufacturer, at least, there's a guy, oh God, Woody, been to some of my seminars. What you know him, Bert? The, the um, he's a speaker, but he's he got he owns the um, the cat clock thing from the 1950s. Um, Woody, um, oh, yeah. hey, Woody Young, yeah. And you guys all know the clock. It's the it's the clock where the head and the tail move. You know, everybody had them in their kitchens in in, in the 50s. Well, they sell a ton of them, okay, and they're in a ton of catalogs. And they're in retail stores. And I think he's been on Home Shopping Network. Every box has in it. I just got one for somebody. The pitch to join the, what's the thing called? The Kit Kat Clock. There you go. Good. Okay. There's a pitch to join the Kit Kat Clock Club. Okay. And you get a t-shirt and you get a thing and you're a member of the Kit Kat Clock Club. Why? Because he wants the name and the address and the email address so he's got some control over his business because he's in direct communication with the end users. Now, he may choose to drive them back through a store. Last year, I think the first year they came out with Kit Kat clocks now in neon colors. Okay, they got them in pink, banana yellow, turquoise. I think they were all black before. Okay? So he's probably going to do an email blast to everybody and say, hey, we got them in eight colors. Now, he may not direct sell it. I don't know if he does or he doesn't. He may drive them all back to the stores. Go to Kmart, go to Walmart, go to whatever, and get your turquoise clock. But he's got the ability to do that. And if Walmart takes them out of their stores, he can email them and say, go over here. Because he's got control of the end user. So he's a manufacturer who deals through wholesalers, and sells through catalogs, but he's smart enough to get as much of the end user names as is humanly possible. Right. So you've got to be deeply concerned about a business where you don't have control. Because they may feed you today, but they may not feed you tomorrow. Uh, page 50. There's, there's really two things about this. I'll actually do the second first. There's a really dumb thing that's told to everybody. It's, it's gambler superstition is really its origination. Uh, the Kenny Rogers song. 
don't count your money when you're sitting at the table. It's gambler superstition. Okay. And a lot of people transfer it and believe it in business and in life. Right. And it's dead wrong. You want maximum money, you're focused on money, therefore you're always counting. When I call in, I want to know, are we making money? The second question I want to know is, how much have we made today? Matt and I talked about it at lunch. Same thing. He's always watching his numbers. How much have we made by 10 o'clock? How much have we made by 12 o'clock? If he's away and calls, he wants to know. Larry and I had a conversation. Do you, by the way, Larry, where are you? There you are. Um, you're either shorter than I thought you were. There's a couple really tall people in front of you. Um, do you want me to keep your numbers to myself? You don't care? He's having his first $450,000 month. Um, he's going he's to wind up up 300% this year over last year. Uh, and today they did, what, by, the, by lunch, your top guy had done what? Okay, 7,500. Here's what's important. He knows. He's counting. He's paying attention. He's watching the money. It's amazing how many people don't know. I can stump them with marketing questions, but I can stump them with money questions too. Same day this month versus last month, are you ahead or behind in sales? Huh? Well, if you don't know where you are on the 10th of the month, by the time you figure it out on the 29th, it's too late. You're not going to make it up on the 30th. You got to know now. When we fill boot camps, when we're doing, right now, we're in the marketing for Ben Altadon is in the fall, Mike Storm's in the fall, Joe's in the fall. I got to know where we are today as compared, if this is the, 18th day of the marketing cycle, I got to know where we were on the 18th day of the marketing cycle last year in order to know if on the 18th day of the marketing cycle this year we're ahead, we're in trouble, do we need to crank it up, is there something wrong, is it going great, do we need a bigger room, do we, I got to watch it day by day. He should be watching it half day by half day. Watch the money. And I have a little thing I've always done. You might want to play with this. I've always, here's what, mo, what do most people kept keep in their checkbook balance? A ledger. Oh, by the way, how many of you delegate the checkbook in your business just for the hell of it? Oh, good. Very good. Only a few. Very good. Lots of reasons, not lots of practical reasons not to do that. But there are psychological reasons, too just like the bank deposit. Um, most checkbook ledgers just track the balance. That's probably what yours tells you. Um, every time I look at my checkbook, there's a constant tracking of where I am in relationship to the amount of cash I want to have on hand by the end of the year. Total cash assets. 
So there's a continual list that I'm continually updating of what's in this account, what's in that account, what's in that account, what's sitting over here in this, what's sitting over here in this, what's due to me, which there isn't much of that, and what that total is in relationship to what the total is supposed to be on December 31st. So I'm down X dollars. How much ground have I made up in the last 30 days? Where am I in ratio? And so you could go through mine, and if you went back enough years, you could see you could see the progression against the first million, you could see the progression against the second million, you could see the progression against the third million, you could see the sudden disappearance, you could see the progression again. You could, um, but, but I track that daily. I want to know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars I am away from the number I'm supposed to hit by the end of the year, and I want to know if I'm making up ground, if I'm not making up ground. Do I need to crank it up? Can I coast? Somebody yelled out one from the back. Okay. It doesn't matter whether you do that or not. The most important thing to do is to measure. Okay? And the more ways you measure, the more frequently you measure, any athletic coach will tell you, and most athletes will tell you, Absent any other changes, measurement improves performance. Absent any other changes, no change in diet, no change in conditioning, no change in, in training, no change in anything, measure the performance more, the performance improves. Well, we're dealing with performance here, our own. The more we measure, See, most people don't, be there's all sorts of things in business they never measure. Jay knows the inbound call. Can you believe this? There are doctors who couldn't tell you. Forget about the ratio. I know what you're thinking. They're supposed to know the ratio. How many appointments for how many inbound calls? There's doctors who can't tell you the first number. How many inbound calls did we get this week? I don't know. Now, they might know how many appointments they got, but it's a meaningless statistic. You can't improve that without monitoring the ratio. And they don't know that number. People don't know their average transaction value. Michael in the, re in the restaurant business. I'll bet he knows his average tra transaction value. I'll bet he monitors it and works on improving it. You can't improve it if you don't know what it is, if you don't have benchmarks. Transaction value in a restaurant is vital. You're dealing with small transactions to start with. If we can get every customer up by a buck, and we do, we seat 300, and we do three seatings a night, that's, a thousand, that's 900 bucks. Six nights a week, 5,400, four months is 21.6. By the way, you ought to be able to do money math in your head, not with calculators. I'm no good at any other kind of math. And I, got to, I was given a C in algebra because I had the algebra instructor in my Am Amway group. Um, um, I can't, I, I, but I can't do any, uh, but I can do money math. And it's amazing how many people can't do money math. They can't even figure this stuff out. You should be able to do that in your head. But you've got to figure out what all the vital statistics are, all the vital money statistics in your business and in your bigger picture of where you're trying to get, 
And the more you monitor them, the more you measure them, the more you set short fuse targets. See, the reason Larry knows how much they did today is because he's got daily objectives. Some people have hourly. Because that way you stay ahead of it. You don't get behind it. If you got, if you're managing X number of customers, you may be measuring how much they spend and looking at their spending patterns. Every business is going to be different. But if you put most people to the wall, they're sloppily and occasionally monitoring four or five numbers, four or five stats. And the rest of the stuff they're getting is history. The bookkeeper or the accountant does it, and they see it a month afterward, a quarter afterward, or a year afterward. It's the equivalent of the annual performance review for the employee. Too long. You do that with kids. Imagine, annual performance review. Well, after they burn down the entire neighborhood, Got to be more often, right? I have a client who said, I was at his place. Well, it was Paul Johnson. He don't mind me telling him. I'm at his place. We're shooting his infomercial. And we're there on a day real business is happening. And now, to be fair, here's how good his market is. Paul in the room, is Paul here today? No. Good. Then I can really talk about it. <laughs> here's how good his marketing is. It's like a 70% give or take close rate of people who come. They get to the facility, 70% of them buy. But this is total testament to all the pre-marketing, because I've seen the sales. The sales guy, oh, up pulls this couple. Anybody in the room here, you could know nothing about sheds, and you could have made this sale. Up pulls this couple, about a five-year-old Cadillac, immaculate, gleaming. I'm a marine license plate holder. Flag thing in the corner, marine decal in the other corner, right? Guy gets out, about 55, casual clothes, but pressed. Mm -hmm. Nice little wife with him. Looks like somebody stays home, bakes. He's got a brochure. He's got the brochure. He's got the testimonial booklet, and he's got a clipboard. <laughs> Comes up, there's four different shed models. He's in and out of the sheds, they're outdoors. He's in and out of the sheds, exactly what you saw on the show where we were shooting. He's in and out of the sheds, finally he's back in one of the sheds, she's trailing along, he's writing on his clipboard. Out comes the sales guy. Young guy, goatee, sunglasses. Never takes the sunglasses off. never asks a question, answers questions, never asks a question. And I've seen the script. He's supposed to be asking questions like, what are you going to do with your shit? <laughs> never asks a question, answers questions until he's answered the last question. Never tries a close. They stand there. They look at each other. Problem is, they don't know how to buy. See, he's supposed to know how to sell. They haven't been trained how to buy. They part company. 
sales guy goes back inside to sit down and watch TV or drink Coke or whatever it is he's doing in there. Couple goes back to car, comes back from car, goes back into one shed, is in there for three, four minutes, comes back out, goes to car, drives away. I'm ill, right? <laughs> I mean, it's all I can do. I'm thinking, geez, I mean, what a lay down this is, right? Now, keep in mind, they're getting 70% with this going on. Mm -hmm. I say to Paul, I tell him, we're driving now to somebody's house to shoot one of the testimonials. I said, you know, <laughs> Yeah, he said, you know, he said, about a year ago we did some sales training and we did get a bump. A year? They forget their job over the weekend. Okay? Monday you do sales training. You're spending all this money to get them there. You've got to have the functional person. If you're stuck in a business, you've got people. I don't envy you, but if you're going to have them, you've got to fix them daily. And you've got to measure their performance. So here's the question I ask. How many leads did he, whatever the doofus's name is, which I now forget, how many people did he meet with last week? I don't know. Therefore, you can't know what his closing ratio is because you don't know what the starting number was. He doesn't know how many total people came, but he doesn't know how many Al dealt with or how many Bill dealt with. Got to know. Got to be on top of that. Got to measure Al's average transaction size because there's upsells. There's window boxes. There's windows. There's solar panels. There's, the money's all in the upsells. If you're running a car dealership, you don't just monitor the number of units the guy moves. You monitor the average sale. You monitor the margin, because they have flexibility in, in the margin, right? Guy, guy could be the third best guy in total units, but he could make it, be making you the most money. So every business has a bunch of stats that you need to be on top of all the time. And your own money stats. Where are you? Where are you trying to get to? I'm also big on figuring out ahead of time where the money's going to come from. Because if you figure that out at the beginning of every year and then you recheck it every month or every week, depending on how you get your money, then you can figure out what the dollar amount is that you want this year that you don't know where it's coming from, that you have to create something to get it. So every business has some stable sources of money, I hope. I mean, even mine does. So at the beginning of the year, I know well, I get this much from platinum. Done deal. In fact, we've already collected most of it. I got this much from my coaching programs. We got this many people who are due for expire this year. I know what our renewal rate is. I can do the math. I know what we're going to get from renewals. All right. uh, I pretty much lay down. I'm going to average a consulting day every month. So I'll plug in 12 times $7,800. Okay, that's known. That's a known figure up all the knowns, deduct that from the amount of money I want, here's the number, I don't know where it's coming from. It's X. Now I gotta go figure out where to get X. What are we gonna do to make X happen? Guy running a restaurant, he's got a certain number of customers who come in twice a week unless they're dead. 
Okay, and their average ticket size is X. We know we got that. He's got a certain number of customers who come in four times a week. Well, we know what that is. The cop comes in every night and orders pie and coffee. Okay? 30 nights, pie, coffee, boom. We could figure up what the, what's going to be there for sure. Now, if we want it to be 50,000 this month, and the total we figure up that we know is going to be there is 25. Now we got to figure out where we're going to get, how are we going to make the other 25 happen? What are we going to do? If you don't do these calculations, you're running around flying blind. You may be doing more than you need to do, and you could go play golf. You may be doing less than you need to do. But if you're not monitoring, if you're not working the numbers, you don't know. And remember, just specific to marketing. Marketing boils down to behavioral psych and math. That's it. The math part's just as important. It's just not as much fun. By the way, I hate all this. Wasn't any good at it. I don't like it. I detest it. I'd rather not do it. But if I don't do it, I don't get the results I want. The second thing about, then about targets is you want to be very, very careful. You want to set targets. You want a lot of targets. There's some theoretical, there's some people running around right now. There's a couple speakers. There's a couple books out. The book sold very well because it told people what they wanted to hear. Uh, in fact, I think the title of the book was Don't Set Goals, if I'm not mistaken. Am I wrong, Michael? It's out there, isn't it? Living without a goal? I was tempted. Huh? No, there's one called Don't Set Goals. Now, there may be another one, Living Without. Don't Set Goals made it to the Times bestseller list and the Amazon list. It was up there for a while. It's not quite as dumb as the book Non-Manipulative Selling, but it's close. Well, I mean, that book, by definite, Non-Manipulative Selling. Can you think of a dumber title? All selling is manipulation. What else is it? I mean, it should be a two-page book. Non-manipulative selling, bankruptcy. That's what it should be. You know? End of story, you know? So this thing, don't set goals. And there's people running around, don't set goals. because Here's the rationale. Because most people who set goals don't get them. Well... Most people don't do anything with anything. That's why the Federal Trade Commission law, it's the worst law ever written. And we all have to live by it. Mm -hmm. it's, the, it's the typicality of claims law. The typicality of claims law says that the claim, the promise you present to the marketplace, contextual, including your testimonials, should represent the typical results achieved by your customer. Okay. So, in the way, well, since 95% of them do nothing, that kind of on a bell curve brings the average way down, doesn't it? Now, if you could use the five, and, but, and, and, but and just do the ones who did something. So, in weight loss, for example, typicality of claims says you're only supposed to be, that's why you see all the, they'll show you other stuff and they get, and it's risky, depending on how you do it. But they're always average or typical weight loss is, you know, a pound a week or a half a pound a week or whatever. 
because that's the real story. Not that you couldn't lose 20 pounds a week with this product. Some people do. But there's 90% of the people who buy it who never take it, right? Or they don't follow the diet that comes with it. They take the weight loss pill and then they eat, eat pizzas, all right? Well, they're going to screw up your average big time. Right? So it's a bad, it's a very bad law. So the deal, oh, we're going to tell everybody not to set goals because most people who set goals don't get them. Well, most people who do anything don't get anything, the results from it. That's, that's most people. God forbid we should make our decisions based on the results most people get. You'd never do anything. Right? You'd never attempt anything. You'd never do anything. You'd put yourself in a cocoon. Right? So that's a bad justification. Every high achiever I know, tons of goals. One of the most successful guys I work with, he's working 300 to 500 at a time, daily, weekly, monthly, quarterly, annually, carries them around in a big book. It's the only thing he schleps around with him. Goal book. Constantly trying to find out where he is. Where am I, where am I, where am I? Counting, 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 counting. But, very important. When you set your goals and you set your targets, don't restrict modus operandi. Other than the list of things you won't do for money. You should have that list. That list is okay. You should have it. But once within that list, be very careful about defining your goals in a way that restrict modus operandi. Most of the five major changeovers of my businesses in the last 20 years my plan and strategy has been behind the reality, not in front of it. It started, and I saw it. I said, oh, okay, now we'll create a plan. Because what's happening by accident, we could make happen more on purpose. And this is better than what we were doing before. But if you restricted the modus operandi, it never would have been allowed to happen. You get it? Let's go to, holy crap. What do I want to go to? Let's go to nine. I'm sorry, I didn't know. I'm sorry, 54, I apologize. Yeah, my nine. None of this is new. I'll be quick. But it's important. I'm amazed at the problems, like in coaching. You can divide everybody in my coaching groups pretty much. Here's one of the ways you can divide them. There's a, there's a third of them who are Maximum get doneers. Month to month, lots of stuff. Boom, 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 boom. Right? I mean, they're into implementation. Yesterday, we had one guy who implemented during the event. I don't know, he, was one, he took, it was Richard Roop, and he took um, Tony Rubleski's strategy for, for collected testimonials that he presented the first day, had a website up, did an email campaign during the night, and had 47 testimonials by the end of the next day. I'd love to have him in coaching. 
because he's going to be fun. Those are going to be good calls and good meetings. There's a third at the other end who pretty much never get nothing done. They're around because they like the sound of my voice. Okay? But pretty much not, they think it's a big month if they got one thing done. Yeah. I mean, I got a guy, this is two years ago now because I bounced him out. I'm trying to get him to do a broadcast fax campaign. It's two years ago. The conversation one, the second month after we talk about it is, I called the fax company. Yeah. Said, in a month. In a month. Next month, I wrote the fax. Three months before this is out. You could have mule trained it. And I mean, well, I'm so busy, I don't have time. Totally out of control. You know. Then you got people who are in their state. Women, you wouldn't know this, but men actually now are talking on the cell phones at the urinals. Honest. Am I lying or not? Huh? Well, my privacy was being invaded. It happened at the break. They're talking on a cell phone at the urinal. <laughs> Their life is so out of control, they can't even pee in peace. You got trouble. I almost stopped and kicked this guy's butt the other day. I'm driving through my neighborhood, and here is this guy out in his front yard. He's playing catch with his kid, talking on the cell phone. I want to just kick his butt. Either put the phone away and pay attention to the kid or leave the kid alone, but don't send him the message, you know, that you are of such trivial importance that I can't take 15 minutes here without being interrupted with a phone call. I mean, I just wanted to take the phone and boom. So people are just, they're just out of control with this thing. If you can't get control of your time, you aren't going to have to worry about managing money. So the list, nothing new. You got to ex you, you got to escape the pure exchange of time for money. Pure billable hours businesses, you can make money. You're not going to get wealthy if you can't find a way to transcend the exchange of time for money. Cuz ultimately you'll reach a point where you can't get any more per minute per hour per day from a straight exchange. I have a few clients right now that we've pushed Neither they nor I can figure out another way to shove their minute, hourly, daily rate any higher than we've got it. We're like 20 times the average in their industry. We're, we, I can't do it anymore. Fight for the highest and best use of your time. You've got to fight for it because people are constantly getting you to do a bunch of crap that you shouldn't be doing, that somebody else should be doing, that doesn't contribute. I mean, on one hand, I went two years without buying gas. Somebody else had to put gas in the car because I ain't got time to buy gas. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a minimum wage. I mean, you know, somebody can go get gas. You know? And I mean, on one hand, 
as a result, I mean, I actually now occasionally enjoy going and getting gas. It's like, hey, normal life, this is what it's like. Uh -huh. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but, but really, I shouldn't be doing it now either. Right? And I've got to stop. I've got to get somebody to go get my gas. Right? I mean, I, Pete's wife did a great, I mean, it's laughable. I mean, I laughed, but if we did it with 20 things, it would be good. She comes and helps when we have the coaching meetings at my house here. And so I tell her, you've got to go to the store, because I, you know, I haven't had time to get anything to the store. You know, one of the things we need is we need paper towel. Donna comes back with like 10 lifetime supplies of paper towel. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking like, you know, a package, right? She comes back with a truck. I mean, I got enough paper towel. Uh, it, it'll outlive me, I promise you. But really, good deal. I got space. One more thing I never have to do again. <laughs> and, and it actually appreciates better than the stock market or real estate. <laughs> so really, it's an appreciating asset now stored in my business. You've you got to fight to stay on the highest and best use items. And you've got to be willing to let things not be dealt with at all in order to do that. I got faxes from people I haven't answered in a month. They're in the month-old pile. Some of them are on their third, and these are people trying to give me money, because I separate that. <laughs> I mean, I, that's the first, that's, by the way, the first thing I do when I look at anything. Is this somebody trying to give me money, or is this trying, somebody trying to get me to do something for free? Because right? anytime they're not trying to give me money, they're trying to get me to do something. I may need to do it, but that's neither here nor there. The A piles are always giving me money. But there's people I've responded to in a month, and some of them, you know, they're on their third. I've been trying to, you know, well, yeah, but I got my priorities. And so this will just sit. And if it's still there, great. If it's not, you know, there's another bus coming. You know? No wait. You've got to be willing to just set stuff aside and not do it. People in their businesses, what do they do when the mail comes? They stop what they're doing. They all, in a big office, they all whoop out of their offices. If there's not a mail room, they're all out there. They want to look at the mail. Rarely is there anything in the daily mail that requires immediate attention or is more important than what they should already be working on. You know, wait. You know, faxes. You know, just because it, it's fast to send it doesn't mean email. Oh, I got, I mean, that, what's the other thing they're doing? They're at the urinal with the cell phone checking their email. <laughs> you know, please. I mean, get with it. That note the word mail. Mail. It's just another pile of mail. You know? When the mailman comes, if you're in the middle of peeing, do you stop, do a Kegel exercise, <laughs> run out there and get the mail? No. So don't do it for email either. It's mail. There are people checking it every 10 minutes. I mean, they're owned by it. Get more than one paycheck for each job. 
get paid from more than one source. Figure out a way to leverage your herd, your influence, your relationship with your customers, what it is that you do. My business is a consultant. Hey, I'm going to tell, oh, you need recorded messages. You don't have recorded messages? Great, we're going to hook you up with this guy with recorded messages. You need this, we're going to hook you up with this guy. Why? Because I'm money. I'm going to get eight paychecks from one deal. That's the way it's supposed to work. Stack up passive income. Passive income is better than active income once you have enough active income. I'd rather have, well, I'll tell you, because it's, it's a good example. Andy said to me, after the, when we went to lunch, he said, you know, he said, that inaccessibility thing may not work for you as good as you think it does because the fact that I know I can't get to you to get a question answered or to get a critique lickety-split is what's driven me to buy from John Carlton and to buy from Bill Glazer. And so you've given John, how much you're in his top deal? So you, what? A couple thousand, couple thousand bucks to John, a couple thousand bucks to Bill. I said, yeah. And I got half of the money from John, and I got half of the money from Bill, and I don't have to do anything. I'd rather have half the money and no work than all the money and all the work. I'm delighted. John, Bill, have at it. All right? All right? I still got them. I'm still getting you here. All right? But now I got passive income. All right? I like passive income. I even like the little ones. My Amazon.com check. I'm excited. I didn't have to do anything to get it. Oh, a check I did nothing for. That's like worth four times a check I got to do something for. Because right? I'm at capacity. I'm a guy that's got a capacity problem. I'm already doing all the work I want to do. So now it's, it's like travel to me. You know, travel now is an anathema. I mean, I, you know, I, I don't want to do it if I can possibly avoid it. I mean, when I started flying, we were talking about this the other day, the old movie. Remember the old movie, Coffee, Tea, or Me? Yeah, airline, they were called stewardesses then, sexy, happy to see you, first class, two passengers, there's a stewardess for every passenger, oh, what can I get you, you know, it really was coffee tea or me, right? Now it's a cavity search and a snarl, okay? <laughs> it, 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 it's just not my idea of fun, okay? So, $5,000 at home, to me, I'd rather have 5,000 be home than 15,000 go get it. You got to know what your own multiple is. You got to know these things if you're going to manage your, your own time. Okay, let's jump to 58. I will relentlessly, I will not give up. First of all, you got to have a price strategy. You may not like mine. You may want to be Walmart for one reason or another. Walmart, very successful company, can't argue against their price strategy yet. But you at least got to have one. And here's what it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be the things that artificially suppress price. Your price strategy should not be motivated by fear. It shouldn't be motivated by guilt. 
It shouldn't be created by industry norms. Hey, let's see what everybody else is doing and do that. It shouldn't be by easy comparison because you can fix that. You can change that. And a big thing that suppresses price is the absence of a sales system. And so because we got a bad sales system, we have to have low price. No, fix the system. Paul can raise the shed prices by another $1,000 if he fixes the salespeople. Still the same number of salespeople. Still the same commission. Same everything. Just fix them. And then raise his prices again. Because okay, now, maybe they'll, they're closing 70% now being bad if they can close 70% being good, but we can charge $1,000 more for every shed. Better business. When you raise your prices, all these good things on this list happen to you. There's too many good things to ignore. So you want to be, in my opinion, your price strategy is premium price, top of the barrel, as high as you can go. McDonald's, we talked about that. Just, I just love this deal. McDonald's. Two months after launching their, oh, they, they copied the value menu deal. Their dollar menu. Two months after, this is the slow boat thing, Tom, you and I were talking about. Two months after they launched their dollar menu, they determined that charging folks only a buck for a burger, I'm reading to you, not, I'm, I'm, not even, I'm not even paraphrasing, charging a buck for a burger tends to lower profit margins. <laughs> Two months to realize this. The fast food company then posted its first quarterly loss in 38 years as a public company. Wrong price strategy. What did they, where did the price strategy come from? Wendy's. Wendy's, that's right. It was a reactive price strategy because they lacked better marketing or selling systems in order to be able to compete at a higher price point. So the answer was, we got to be a buck too. No analysis of what happens to us if we are at a buck. Two months later, hey, we're losing money. <laughs> Well, big surprise. What you were selling for $250, you're selling for a buck. Hey! You know how many more of them you got to sell? It's your next page. This is a biggie. You get this, you change the way you do business. Mm -hmm. Lee, you'll like this one. Size matters. Yeah. <laughs> It's getting late, huh? It does. It's, 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 get, it's, get, it's getting late, huh? Yeah, stay with me here. We got two more hours. I'll give you a break in a minute. Let's say you want 200 grand a year. If you're going to do it at 99 bucks a pop, you need 2,000 of them. If you're going to do it at 4,000 dollars a pop, you need 50. What do you think's harder? Finding 50 or finding 2,000? Finding 2,000 is harder at any price. 
And finding 2000 at 99 is harder for a whole bunch of reasons, including the fact you don't have the money to spend to go find them. For a million, the numbers are even bigger. You want to do it at $99, you want to do a million dollars a year, you need 10,000 units. 10,000 units of something. Then you've got to have infrastructure. You've got to have somebody to ship 10,000 units. You've got to have inventory of 10,000 units. You're handling returns from 10,000 units. You're keeping accounts on 10,000. Now, there's reasons. I mean, I can make uh, other cases, like building up a business to sell it. I mean, there's things we can talk about. But if you want maximum wealth from your own high transaction value. And even if you have low transactions, you ought to have a high transaction end of your business slack adjuster to make up some of the slack. That's the problem. Is Ott here? Aren't you? There, there you are. I mean, that's, that's your whole problem. You think it's because you're not getting done and you're not doing... See, so he, he can't... He's, a, he's an office supply, retail office supply business. Okay? And he's doing... You can't do better marketing. Forget it. You aren't going to get any better. You're already great. Right? You're still a bad business. Right? And I'm going to tell you something. You can't fix bad economics with good marketing. You can't do it. I have clients trying to do it all the time. We've got to make the ad better. Don't matter. If we double the results, you're still in the toilet. The math sucks. And we can't double the results anyway. We already got a good ad. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have a guy come to me, this is about a month ago. He's got a full-page newspaper ad he's running. Halbert did it. It's good. At his worst, it's good. It appeared to me, looking at the ad, Halbert actually worked on this. <laughs> I, mean, I mean, at some point in time, he, you know, focused. And he, and he did what he's capable of doing. Hey, let me tell you something. Pound for pound, dollar for dollar, he's so much better than I am, it isn't even funny. If you can get him to work. And this is good. And this guy comes to me, and he wants to hire me because all he needs to make money is a 6% improvement in response. I said, are you out of your mind? And nobody's going to get it. It's not going to happen. I mean, I might, maybe, maybe, I might find a way to bump it a little. What I want to do is knock it off. You know? The guy shows me his numbers, I'm thinking, you bonehead. Give me this deal. All I got to do is raise the price, turn the offer from a single item into a silver gold, in, into an upsell level, add an upsell, change the back end. There's six million things I could do. This thing's running at a tiny little loss. Full-page newspaper ads all across the country. Oh, give it to me. He's wanting to fix the ad. You can't fix the ad. You've got to fix the math. A lot more ways to fix the math than there is to fix the ad.
See, people think the solution to their problems is all in the marketing sector. That's good for me. Right? It's nice that they think that. They just too narrowly define what marketing is. Most of the time, the answer's not there. And a lot of times, the answer's right here, transaction size. Because in many, many instances, it costs just as much to sell it for X as it does to sell it for Y. Larry said yesterday, doubled his transaction size. Yeah, he's about to have his $450,000 month. Well, a year ago, that would have been a $225,000 month because he doubled his price. Hadn't changed his conversions. All right. Now, he's improved his marketing, too. But hey, a lot of this is price. It's transaction size. And in many cases, there's elasticity. There's ways to move it. If you're selling too much, too easy, you know. You guys all know that. You know, we have that when we sell something one-on-one. -on -one. Guy last week, you know, and said, you know, you want to sell that horse? I said, you bet. Everything's got a price. What do you want for it? I paid three for it. We're racing it in a $4,000 claiming race. He could actually go claim it for four like an idiot. I said five. He said, great. I have to check. Guess what I immediately think? Yeah. Could have got 5500 easy, and maybe I should have kept him. Um, well, you always wanted more after, you know, before nobody wanted him but me. Now somebody wants him, you know, maybe I'm wrong. Um, uh, but, you know, we all go through this. So a lot of this is transaction size, okay? And a lot of people don't, don't work on it enough. Which is you guys know that, you guys know that. Okay, we're going to jump to the biggie. I can tell when you guys are burning out, and I want to do questions anyway. Let's take our break, and when we come back, we'll go back to the Napoleon Hill W. Clement Stone question. I Earlier, I meant to mention, and I didn't, and now the page is gone. Ah, nuts, the marker's gone. These are, um, these are the Napoleon Hill magazines Phil brought from 1921, and um, there was something I was going to read you, but not... Uh, Phil, oh, here it is. First, one of the interesting things, by the way, a lot of people didn't know this about Hill either. I mean, he wound up, you know, being rescued by Clem and making a lot of money, enough money, late in his life as a sales trainer. Uh, but Hill supported himself his entire life uh, as a direct response copywriter and kind of an itinerant sales trainer. And he did a lot of it. And um, the one thing the old guy knew how to do was pitch and get a check. And the magazine, there's one pitch after another. It's magnificent. It's to pitches to hire him to speak, pitches for seminars, pitches for books based on lectures. I mean, the thing's at least half pitch. Um, this just kind of links to the all news is good news deal. Um, and of course, nothing is new. Here's an ad for a new lecture by Napoleon Hill, The End of the Rainbow. It's brief. I'll read it to uh, This lecture, like all of Mr. Hill's others, is built out of his own experience. It covers the seven turning points of his life, each of which was marked by what looked to be an irreparable failure. Throughout this entire lecture, a certain principle may be seen running like a golden thread that binds each incident of the experience into a guiding line that leads finally to the end of the rainbow. 
the lecture will take you back into your yesterdays. It will bring back to memory those disappointments which seemed to end your happiness but later turned out to be blessings in disguise. It will carry you back over a pathway that was laden with thorns and watered with tears back to the day that Napoleon Hill first began as a laborer in the coal mines. After you have gone with Napoleon Hill down through the valley of the shadow and up over the mountains of toilsome heights to the end of the rainbow, you will love mankind more than you did before. You will be more tolerant than you were before. You will be bigger and broader than you ever were before. And you will be inspired to undertake more than you ever thought of undertaking before. This lecture is Mr. Hill's crowning career masterpiece, and if he never contributes anything else for the good of this and future generations, this one lecture is enough to ensure him a place in the hearts of his fellow man for a long time after he has passed over the great divide. And then, of course, there's, there's a call to action. It's great copy. Uh, Phil, you're gonna, are you going to reprint these babies? No. You're not. You chicken you. <laughs> Okay. All right. Okay. Too bad. Uh, all right. So, our friend Napoleon Hill winds up, after all of this, having to be hired by W. Clement Stone. W. Clement Stone is inspired by Napoleon Hill and winds up with a ton of money. A number of differences, many of which we talked about during the day, but here's the big one. Now, if you remember, we talked about the title of Napoleon Hill's book, Think and Grow Rich. Who knows the title of Clem Stone's book? Okay, that, okay, his first, I'm sorry, his first book. That book stinks. Yeah. Bingo. The Success System That Never Failed. It is the book you should read. But you don't have to read it to get this, because he put it in the title. The difference is on page 66, and the key word is system. Throughout his entire life, Napoleon Hill never devised any system for turning himself and his content into money. He had an unsystemized business. W. Clement Stone applied the philosophy in an environment where he was able to create a marketing and mostly a in his day, a manual labor selling system that was reliable and predictable. It used human labor, but pretty much did not require good human labor. They could be plugged in and out. He had a true sales system, and that's the difference. If you look at, if you look at Guthy Ranker, now I started to work with Guthy Ranker when they thought, talk about restricting modus operandi, they thought they were going to be the infomercial company that sold the world self-improvement and success information. It's why they got into the business. Well, they got into the business for a money reason, too. Uh, Bill was manufacturing all the tapes for the get-rich-in real estate guys who did the first infomercials, and he, and he understands margin. All right. We got 50 cents worth of cost of goods. We're selling this thing to them for 57 cents a tape. They're selling it for 50 bucks a tape. Be better to be on their end of the deal. So there was profound money motivation. But also, um, uh, uh, Bill particularly, um, uh, in, in love with, as many of us have been at any one given point in our time, self-improvement, wanted to share it with the world. And so they believed they were going to be the self-improvement 
company driven by infomercials. Hence the first show, Think and Grow Rich, done with the foundation. The second show, Personal Power, done with Tony. Gradually came to realize that it was hard, that, that now you'd pretty much exhausted the ability to have hits, uh, discovered how hard it is to sell self-improvement, um, but had made it, but knew how to make infomercials work. If you look at the company today, which the year, the first year Tony was on the air, they maybe did 20 million. Last year, maybe 750 million. Okay. This is a big business. But the business is nothing like it was. But the business is now systemized. And all they're doing is cloning the same system over and over again. And I've said many times there's a lot of things they don't do well, but there's enough things they do really, really well, and they've gradually decided to do only those things they do really, really, really well, that therefore they're making a lot of money. They've mastered continuity, continuity retention, continuity marketing. They've mastered continuity of consumable products, and they got it down to a science. And so if you analyze their business today, it's the proactive acne treatment business, the Victoria Principle skincare business, the comprehensive vitamin business, and anything else that they attempt fits the same system. It's got a star, it's got a consumable product that you either smear on, you eat one way or another. It's the old Rich DeVos rule. One way or another, it's got to eventually go down the sink. Okay? It's got to get used up, so they need more of it. And now we can auto ship it every month. Okay? So everything fits that system. And then everything's the same. Everything to retain the customer is the same. Everything to upsell the customer is the same. Everything to expand the product line is the same. The move from the infomercial to QVC is the same. Everything's the same. It's just what's the next thing we can plug into the system. The wealthiest people I know, their businesses operate by system or systems. And the total absence of them is a real problem. It's not one that you can't necessarily overcome especially if you can make money in big chunks. Uh, but still, it's much better to be systemized. I've never completely achieved it in my business. I have systems. I don't have the most important one, um, which is customer acquisition. My system for customer acquisition for 15 years was manual labor. The fallacy of that system is if you don't want to do the manual labor anymore, you ain't got no system. Um, and when you're not niched, it's very hard to conquer that particular part of the business. Uh, not a mountain I want to climb at this particular point in my life, but, um, and it's a mountain Napoleon Hill was never able to climb. Tried a lot of things, by the way. Franchised, like Dale Carnegie, tried to franchise. Um, tried the seminar sales system route with the local coordinator and the sales team. I mean, they did a lot of stuff. He did a lot of things. Could never, could, could never get the front end system right. W. Clement Stone applied the philosophy in an environment where you could get a system right. Don Dwyer, who was a client of mine, um, was at one time um, uh, the marketing slash recruiting director for SMI, Success Motivation Institute, which sold a franchise to be in the success business.
to the best of our knowledge, there is one successful franchisee. Um, thousands of franchises sold every year, up until recently, one successful franchisee. After a few years, Don made the W. Clement Stone decision. We got a system that works, except we're applying it to the wrong thing, because it's too hard to take Joe Spadats off the street, who's inspired, and have him go out and sell success. We can't get John able and prepared to do that. We can sell to John, we can get John to come up with five grand, 10 grand, 15 grand to buy our franchise. Now John can't do the franchise. So Don started Rainbow Carpet Cleaning and sold carpet cleaning franchises. Did everything else the same. Same advertising, same marketing, same bring them to Waco every weekend. And so for a while, the only people coming to Waco, except that one time, <laughs> the, um, are, are the only people coming to Waco every weekend. It's not like a tourist attraction, you know. Uh, we're, we're all coming there for, to be sold by SMI. Now, every Friday, there's all the SMI guys arriving, and there's all the rainbow carpet cleaning guys arriving. And they're going off to their respective seminars, and the seminars are like almost the same, all head trip stuff. Just at the end, the thing you're going to apply your newfound soaring confidence and sales skills and ambition to is not the success business, it's the carpet cleaning business. Why? Because it's easier to take John off the street and, can, and teach him how to go get a carpet cleaning customer. And once he's got one, his confidence builds a little more, and then he gets another. Rainbow, over a handful of years, sold about the same number of franchises that SMI did, and they have hundreds, if not thousands, of successful franchisees. Look in the yellow pages in your city, you're probably going to find one. You're probably not going to find an SMI guy. So the philosophy works. It mostly doesn't work to sell itself. And there are certain environments where, for one reason or another, like we have to fix Ott's business, you could apply all the philosophy and all the profound marketing you want, you want, but the business is still flawed to such a degree that it doesn't matter. If you can't systemize it, it may be so flawed, it doesn't matter. And so the difference between Hill and Stone was systems. And if you read the two books now side by side or one behind the other, um, you will uh, see a dramatic difference. Um, okay. We want to we want to do these questions. Yeah. Oh, this is a leftover one. I like this. I want to do this though. This is Ron Carruthers. This is the one you chose to skip. Uh, Ron's still here. Right here. Okay. I didn't have the stones to ask this during his presentation, but what in the hell does Tom Morent do to justify his $48,000 fee for his coaching program? <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not complaining, I'm intrigued. Uh, and then the form, had the, the form from yesterday had a place for second choice question. No second choice, answer my first one. <laughs> okay. 
Um, and you ask because the price point surprises you. Yeah. Um, well, first of all, let me suggest a better question. The better question would have been, rather than what the hell does Tom O'Rent do to justify his $48,000 fee, the better question would be, how does Tom O'Rent sell his $48,000 coaching program? Okay? Because the sales mechanism is far more useful for you to discover than is what is being de delivered. However, since you asked the wrong question, you get the answer to the wrong question. Um, we have a joke in the, because Tom's a VIP member, and this was kind of birthed in the coaching program. Our joke is, this is his for $48,000, I'll be your friend program. Um, uh, uh, these are dentists. These are cosmetic dentists, high-end cases. Okay? The, transaction, the average transaction size is between thirty dollars and $40,000. Therefore, the justification, regardless of the delivery, is all you need is one really good case all year long you wouldn't have got otherwise, and the program costs you nothing. If we can't get you one, we should both be shot. If you only got two, you wouldn't have got otherwise. You got 100% return on your investment. Right. Now, there's a lesson there. Right. It's the need to make whatever they buy free. That's why the pots and pans are free, because you save so much on utility and you save so much on food that really these $1,700 pots and pans don't cost you anything. Surely you'd want them for free. Okay. The window replacements don't cost you anything because you save so much on heating and cooling. The new windows pay for themselves. You know, bill collector, bill collector called the blonde. Said, "Hey, you haven't you had these windows for two years. You haven't made a payment." She said, "You told me in two years they paid for themselves." <laughs> um, everything needs to pay for itself. And so part of the selling argument, that the amount you can get is determined in a business-to-business -business environment, and a lot of times it's determined by what their transaction size is and how you can make the argument that they're going to get the money back and then some. So he is fortunate for starters to be in an environment where his customer has such a high transaction value, which allows him to make a low hurdle argument of how this can be free. If he's selling the same coaching program to chiropractors, average case maybe is $4,000. Takes 10 patients you wouldn't have got otherwise. Okay. Okay. So the dollar relationship and the way you figure out how to make the price go away, the investment is irrelevant, is very, very, very important. Now, the delivery, it's really very much a standard. Um, it's very much like Gold Plus VIP for dentists. Okay? They meet several times a year for roundtable brainstorming sessions. The group size is limited. Uh, they have telephone coaching time. They get his lower levels of things bundled in. They come to the annual event for free. 
They have one 911 emergency thing that they can get to them if they need them within 48 hours. And so it's a coaching package. Hmm? No, he sends somebody. Staffed goes. Yeah, first year he went. Staff goes. And there's a trainer. Um, um, there is a $70,000 program as well. Uh, no one has bought it yet, but it helps sell the $48,000 program. <laughs> you didn't ask that question, but... All right. Oh, here's a goodie. Okay, that was, if you're keeping track, Michael, that was Ron Carruthers. Huh? You know, okay. Greg Neal. Greg here? Greg here? Too bad, it's a good question. Well, he can't win a prize. Funny question. Is there any way to get your attention without having to pay you a massive amount of cash? <laughs> um, no. Um, hey, fire didn't work. No, it was on fire. You know, it took time for get to get my attention. And I was still trying to finish the phone call. Yeah. 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 Well, that might. Um, briefly, though, um, you have four months and a bomb. Oh, here, 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 here you go, Pamela. Uh, whoever's got a mic, we need to get Pamela a mic. This, this is so easy. Pamela's going to answer it. This is worse than I thought, though. You have four months. We'll make it 12 months if that helps you. And a bomb has been implanted inside of you. If you do not generate $1 million, the bomb detonates. You can't use any of your current contacts or anyone you know. <laughs> we'll leave that part out. I'll answer that part. Okay, you got a year. Okay. Okay. Well, actually, four months, I guess. Yeah, I'll give you 12 right, you give because, me a year. because your story's 12, right? Okay. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't 12 know. is good enough. Okay. <laughs> well, there, I, the reason you're throwing that question to me is that uh, I, about a little over a year ago, I sold my company. And I um, proceeded to get it back about three months later. <laughs> which was not quite what I had in mind, was not what I was looking for. And uh, I, it, it, but it opened my eyes. And, and so I really had this opportunity. I was, I was basically bored with a lot of what I was doing. Uh, I know, it, it, nonetheless, I was bored with what I was doing. So I, um, I thought, you know, this is my opportunity to really start fresh. I could do anything I want, not only that, what about all the stuff I've learned over the years through Dan and all of my other mentors? And what if I actually used all that stuff right from the start of building a business? And uh, so what happened, it was, it was about almost a, a year ago today that I uh, got the business back. And then I, I just thought all, all these things that I've learned, like, for example, one thing that Dan always said that really struck me, and you didn't come up with this but yourself, but it was just like the principle of massive action. And I got, I decided I'm not going to do things on a small level anymore. I'm going to do things 
big. And I work in a niche industry. I work in the uh, financial service. I work with insurance agents and financial services agents and so on. And it's, a, it's not a tiny industry, but it's not huge. But I wanted to stay within the niche, and I wanted to do something totally new, but I wanted to do it on a massive scale. And uh, so what, the other thing that happened was I decided that I wasn't even going to promote my own stuff, which, you know, I mean, that was a big, little bit of an ego blow. Um, many years ago when I first met Dan and I started consulting with him, he told me, he sa I, I, I said, you know, I sell mostly to financial services professionals. Ninety percent of my clients are male. And here's what my closing ratio is, and here's what my back-of-the-room ratio is. And he says, well, you know, it doesn't matter how good you are, there's going to be some men that are never, ever going to buy from a woman, which was total news to me, you know, because <laughs> I never had any kind of image of a glass ceiling or anything like that. But uh, just everything that kind of came together, I ended up promoting somebody else's idea who had a wonderful idea but had never really been able to promote it, didn't understand anything about marketing, and he had remained a, a total secret. And in a, I'm just going to give you a nutshell of what it is. Basically, it's a way to recapture all of the interest that you pay to cr credit card companies, to uh, car finance companies for your mortgage and so on, recapturing all that money that would normally just piss away and give to banks and finance companies, put it back in your pocket plus quite a bit more, usually double or triple that amount. And so I took somebody else's concept, started promoting him, and um, w used everything you have ever taught me ab about marketing in terms of customer ac acquisition. We went to, you know, I didn't have enough customers to, of my own to do this on that, that level. So we started going to joint venture partners. We started buying customers through associations. We started buying customers through uh, the, the uh, different media that, that advertise and that, that have connections with our customers. And we did this on a, on a, on a much bigger scale. And um, we're getting numbers that none of my colleagues in the industry have seen in terms of number of people that will like sign up for a teleseminar or sign up, show interest in this particular topic. And um, uh, part of, the, of, of doing that was I did a massive amount of work on all the principles that you're talking about here today. It isn't enough to just have, it wasn't enough to just have learned all those things from marketing. And it, it wasn't enough to have a great idea that everybody seems to want to get their hands on. But I mean, every single, every single day, I spend probably close to a minimum of one hour every single day just on wealth attraction principles alone. And I, I, I've done it more religiously, I've done it more uh, formally than I've ever done it before, and all I can tell you is that it works. I mean, it just works incredibly. And your, your psycho-cybernetics program is phenomenal. Everybody in this room should have it if it's still even available. Yep, yep, yep. So in 12 months, you went from zero to one, from a standing start to what? From a standing start to a million dollars. Good. Right. <laughs> Knowing what you know now, what would you do differently to create and retain wealth if you were just starting out today? Whose is that? Yours and your name for scoring purposes? Denise Clement. Denise what? Probably only going to be one Denise. You can just get close. <laughs> close enough for government work. Knowing what you know now, what would you do differently to create and retain wealth if you were just starting out today? Well, I mean, my dream is, you know, a second life, but keep the brain. Um, 
Um, I'd niche. I'd niche rather than being a gen generalist um, uh, simply because it's easier. Um, it's much easier to solve the customer acquisition system part of the problem. Um, I would, um, hmm. I do what Pamela said, I would probably, because I do it now and I didn't do it early, I would work more on the head trip stuff every day in a more formalized way uh, rather than catch as catch can, what does you know. Mean? Well, uh, a scheduled time, block time for it, uh, a curriculum plan, um, you know, rather than listen to this tape, listen to that tape, idea here, idea there. Um, I, don't, I don't know that it's fair to say I would have changed any of the evolution of the business or not. Um, I would have been selling at higher prices early. I mean, there's no doubt in my mind now, for example, that our success track business in chiropractic and dental, we should have been at twice the price we were from day one. Um, so. God knows I made that mistake. Um, I would have, this is small, but I would have bought my own office building. Um, I'd like to have all recapture the interest. I'd like to have all the rent. All right, we got, what's the biggest difference in thinking that can take people from a million a year to 10 mil million a year, year or more? Whose is that? Hmm? Anybody? Going to claim it? If you're not going to claim it, I'm not going to answer. Yeah, I'll claim it. <laughs> you said you didn't. I want to hear your answer. No, but but we'll give him a running shot at it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Give him credit. Put him in the contest as if it was his question because we're going to make him answer it. <laughs> Where's the mic? Like the last two days, didn't he? Huh? Yeah. Well, he's smart enough to answer this question. He doesn't need me to answer this question. All right. You've gone from zero in your business to what in how many years? Yeah, and, uh, to whatever, between uh, a million and 10 million. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Mul multiple millions. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and you ain't working all, all that hard. No, we take vacation. Yeah, yeah but come vacation. on, this, this, this boy works damn hard. <laughs> huh? This boy works damn hard. Oh, please. Oh, please. I'm, so, not, what, I'm, I'm not shoveling ditches, but... So, know, what's, what's the answer? It's hard work. Do you want uh, to hear your question again? No, I know the question. Okay. I know the question. Um, all right, off the top of my head. Delegate everything on my plate as fast as I can. Only do the stuff that I know makes money. Uh, do lots of stuff that doesn't make money, but I don't know it till the market tells me and I get kicked in the ass. Uh, so execute really, really fast. Um, That's a biggie. Yeah, execute really fast. But, but that only happens with the first one, which is because I, I keep creating stuff to do. I've got to just spin it off and find other people to do it as fast as I can. 
Uh, well, we've, we do a number of things, um, mostly having to do with marketing and advertising and entrepreneurship in the insurance industry. Um, that's a vague answer, but we've got four businesses, so, um, you now, know, lots the, of stuff in that area. The question specifically is difference in thinking. Uh, okay. Uh, all right, number one, I ain't the only guy that can do really important stuff. Uh, I may be the only guy that can do the, the highest level of marketing in my business, but there's a lot of stuff in the business that I'm really, really good at and tend to hold on to. So Not going to get to 10 mil on your own. I ain't going to get to 10 million on my own. That's the um, biggest bad news part of the answer to this question. Yeah. It's going it, to be very tough. What's if that? You like, yeah. It's going to be very yeah, tough. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, I mean it, it's going like to require, it, it's gonna require uh, growth in team. Yeah. I mean, if you like to play it lean and mean like I do, you're going to, in most, in our kind of businesses, in information driven, service-driven businesses, you're going to cap out at right around two and a half to three mil a year, and you're not going to be able to go any farther without people. Yeah, I, I would say that's a really big difference in thinking, mm -hmm. is, is the, um, the plate of stuff that I think a lot of entrepreneurs tend to hold on to is, uh, and, and they're good at, um, is a lot of, there's a lot of stuff on that plate, and they ought to probably get rid of 90% of it. Because it, it's, it's isolating those two or three things that make a lot of money that you should be spending almost all your time on. Mm -hmm. All right. In my area, I'm the best marketer at what I do, which he is. In your area, hell, probably in the country. He's in the painting business. My competition doesn't come close. So since this is the case, the question, in short, is how come I'm not rich? <laughs> this is a very good question, right? because it applies to a lot of people. And there are several parts to the answer. One is the business itself doesn't lend itself to making you rich. Well, I didn't tell you you were going to like it. You know? You want you want you want an answer you like or you want a good okay all right all right it's a business that doesn't lend itself right uh, it's very hard for you to multiply yourself okay? I'm not going to say it's impossible and it's probably a line of thinking you should already be involved in franchising licensing licensing the marketing system you know, they finally managed, one of my coaching members is the guy that owns the big handyman fran franchise company. And they're managing to franchise handyman services. Right? So I wouldn't rule it out, but it's not like it's, you know, hamburger bun, picture on the wall, what the sandwich is supposed to look like. Um, it, it's, a, it's a business in your area to even double the business, your problem's people more than it is marketing and supervising in such a way that you can deliver quality work. Another reason is what he just described, right? Is there stuff you're hanging on to and doing that unless you stop doing it and go and do the next level of things to grow the business, you're in the way of the business growing. 
and you may have to temporarily take a hit. This goes back to what you wanted to talk more about. I said yesterday, or the day before, it's all a blur now, um, after a very long-winded prelude that I won't put the people who are here only today through, that you can really get good at a set of skills that totally are in your way of developing the set of skills you need to do the next level or the next thing you want to do. And so, for example, you can be so good at financial survival, I mean, uh, half of them wouldn't apply today because a lot of things have changed, but I mean, you know, I, I lived pretty good even when I was broke. And I mean, I, I mastered survival skills. I know every which way there is to float a check. I know. I mean, listen, I had checking accounts four different parts of the country, so you could write it from the furthest point away to the place that it needed to go and buy the float. I know about you take the X-Acto knife and cut through the numbers, which takes it out of the automated sort and into the manual sort, buys you two days. Um, I mean, I, I, I mean, I, I got a lot of survival skills. Does that bother you? Oh. You never knew that? I'm surprised. I, um, I, uh, but, but here's the problem. You get so good at the financial survival skills, they're in your way of developing prosperity skills. The analogy I used the other day from personal experience is you can get so good, if you have a drinking problem, you can get so good at the skills of functioning drunk that they're in a the way of the skill of getting sober. So in your business, and I know your deal because you're, you know, you're in the coaching program, like one of the things you're really, really good at is the personal sale. And that's a set of skills you've mastered and you're good at and you're, as he said, loath to let go of, but there's no way in hell your business can ever make you rich as long as you're doing the personal selling. So take Chet Rowland, who's here. Now, Chet, in the pest control business, is like you are in your painting business. He goes out and makes a call, he'll close them. Right? If you go do a, tent, a termite tent presentation, what's your closing rate? Well, I get most of them, but you're always going to have the guy that just wants a low-ball. Yeah, I know. You're gonna be, I know. You want them all. But, I mean, you're like, what, 80% plus? Yeah. What's your best guy? Yeah, okay. He's got to be willing to calibrate the economics of the business to be okay at a 50% close rate and not go make the sales calls. And the temptation, because otherwise he can't have, how many customers you got? Okay. And how many pest sprayer guys you got? I got five guys that actually Techs. So he can't do that if he's going to go sell every new account. So even though he's got the best skills, and even though he can't replicate himself, he'll never get any of these guys to 80%. He could train them from now until doomsday, and he ain't going to get them to 80%. But no way he's going to get that business to a size where he can sell it for a ton of dough and walk away and be rich with him going out and making all the sales calls. And you just sold Orlando, didn't you? You sold one city. So there's a lot to it. There's the business itself. 
There's how can we re-engineer, reinvent the business? See, because lots of businesses can get, you can make a living in a lot of businesses. You can make a very good living in a lot of businesses. You can be a high-income person doing everything yourself. It's very hard, though, doing everything yourself in a traditional business. See, there's no way in your business with my anathema to employees and excess. See, I couldn't do your business. And doing it alone, you know, see, I can do mine alone, and I was able to generate enough income to achieve my wealth goals, but I'm in a big, high transaction, price elastic business. I'm able to transcend billable hours by the royalties, where I'm getting paid for something I wrote five years ago multiple streams of income from the same client. I got a lot, you know, I got a lot of opportunities that you don't have in your business. So you've got to figure out a way to re-engineer that business. You got to take a look at getting out of your own way. I mean, there's very real reasons why the answer to your question, why you're not rich, that have absolutely nothing to do with either your technical competence or your marketing competence and may not have much to do with this head trip stuff. That's right. Now you got the same emotional hurdle. You know, if you were going to say, for example, now go work four cities instead of one and have a joint venture partner in each city, and you're going to control the marketing, and they're going to have the crews, you got to make the emotional adjustment never to go make a sales call again. Right? That's the deal. That's the answer. And it's kind of the million to 10 million. It's the, you know, it's all of that. And it's very hard for the sole proprietor, particularly in a service business, to let go of doing the service. That's the first problem. And he got over that. Because he says he used to be the guy who, ro who rolled the paint in the carpet cleaning industry, getting them to have a second truck and send somebody out to do the job is like pulling teeth because they know the guy's not going to do the job the way they would do the job. They fear the reprisals, the reputation damage. They know the guy's going to quit and they're going to have to replace him, all that stuff. But you can't make, you hit the ceiling. So you got through this once. Now, the good news is you already know how to get through it. See, it's what I say to people. I told people earlier when I started harness racing driving, awful. I mean, god-awful. I'm barely competent now. I've crawled my way from awful to barely competent. All right? But here's the deal. Well, but here's the deal. Everything I've ever done, I was awful when I started. I know the process. I know how to get from awful to competent to good to really good. I know the process. It's a system. I can overlay it on just about anything. I've already been through the process. I know, I know what's going to happen next. I mean, I can feel it happening. So you've already been through this process. Now you've got to take the process you already did successfully once and apply it to the new set of circumstances you have to conquer. Then you can get rich.
and you just got a lot of value. You're welcome. Um, Ot Chin, when you were at, this is Ot Chin for the scoring purposes. When you were at your lowest point in your life financially, what steps did you do to start thinking about breaking through all the bleakness? Um, I strongly suggest to you a trip to the record store and buy a lot of comedy CDs. Um, that's a practical answer, and also you need to lighten up, my man. Bleakness. <laughs> what a word. Oh. Oh. I hurt. Bleakness. Um, what's the phrase? I always said, I'm, I've, been, I've been broke, but I've never been poor. Um, Broke's a temporary condition, poor's a state, state of mind. Broke's fixable, poor's a lot harder to fix. Um, here's, here's the most practical answer to your question, though. When you're in a crisis or survival or perplexed or fix-it mode, make this a short answer because it probably doesn't apply to many people in the room. Um, you simultaneously must create, have, and be working on a more exciting plan to do something big. Variation of what she, she did. If she had come, because this business in three months was a mess. I don't know, I mean, it, was, it wasn't great when you gave it to them, and then it was a mess when you got it back, right? Like, probably a big mess, right? Yeah. If she came back to that thing and all she worked on was the crisis, how can I fix this? How can I stick a thumb in this hole? Just to kind of get it back to where it was, she might never have got that done because of all the attitudinal issues. Okay? But she did that while at the same time whole new big exciting plan that motivated her and was inspiring to her. Okay. Um, I, um, I never wound up doing it, but for example, um, in 19, um, let's see, when did I get general? I got general in 1979. In 1979 or 1980, whichever it was, when I got general set corporation, I mean this is a company that is doing a million dollars a year gross and managing to lose a million a year. Um, this thing didn't have a, this thing the entire time I had the company, we never had a positive check, checkbook balance. I would, I mean, who knows what that is. Um, and this thing, especially early on, state of massive crisis. Uh, we had really severe quality control problems. Uh, we had massive absenteeism problems with 42 people, but never on any one day. Um, uh, we had like 80% of our product, something was wrong with it. Labeled wrong, content wrong, packed wrong, went to the wrong place. Um, our assembly line was like gods for snowflakes. Every item unique. Um, <laughs> Um, 
old shtick. Rolls around in the subconscious. Um, um, and, and, and I mean, so vendors cutting you off, not shipping stuff. I mean, every day was crisis. And from the moment, you know, first thing in the morning to the end of the day, there's always one problem after another. You know? And part of it, if all you did was focus on the survival, and I did for a little while, and it, to my detriment, I mean, I'd have gone nuts if I hadn't been simultaneously working on a bigger, better plan. I mean, at the time, one of the things I was working on was buying Nightingale Conant. Never did it, but it was part of the bigger, better plan. The bigger, better plan changed, but nevertheless, if I'd have just been working on the stick the whole thumb in the dike deal, you know, I'd have found a tall building somewhere probably before that thing was over with. I mean, because it is ugly. And so the answer to this question is, it's almost the same answer as to Bob. I mean, you've got to get, Vance's term, you've got to get out of the little box you're in and completely re-engineer your business plan. Doesn't mean you've got to quit the business you're in, but you've got to completely re-engineer your business plan. You know, I mean, not that this is your answer, but remember, Quill, who I'm sure you gnash your teeth every time you see their catalog out. But Quill, which I believe is now the largest mail order marketer of office supplies in the country, that was two guys in a little office supply store somewhere who weren't making any money. They had a retail store. And they were getting their butt kicked. And that was before Office Max. And those guys, new plan. So the answer is you got to be working, even if you're fighting for survival half the day, the other half of the day, you better be working on something that's exciting, that gets the creative juices going, that keeps you sane, that, you know, so you got to be running two things at the same time. Um, okay, Robert um, Scrob, sorry. Um, huh. uh, okay, the first one's more general. Obviously, you work more on your business than in it. What are I? Um, you may give me a little more credit than I deserve. <laughs> Obviously, you work more on your business than in it. What are the skills that you have developed to leave the details to others, uh, or to chance? Is that the rest of the question? Or to change from. Okay. Okay. So that you can sell. Okay. Let me give you a useful answer, but that is that answers actually a slightly different question. Here's a regimen most people would not think I have, because I cultivate that I because I try and convey that I don't. Every single day no matter what I am doing in the business. I make sure I've done at least one thing to fill the pipeline with new business. Not going to go to sleep without doing one. Last night I had to do it when I got home. This morning I did it at 5.30 in the morning before I left. Got one fax out. Only got one, but I got one. I'm going to do something 
every single day, no matter what I'm doing, to fill the pipeline with new business. Because otherwise, at some point in time, the pipeline's empty. Maybe not. Maybe mine would fill itself now. But I got enough paranoia. It's Andy Grove at Intel who said, you know, paranoia is healthy. Charlie Jarvis said, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not out to get you. Yeah. Um, um, so no matter how much you're in, see, now, like, his challenge is to get out and work on. And it's more of a, like Michael said, it's more of an emotional adjustment, you know, of letting go of things and letting them not be the way you would do them or as good as you would do them. And so with Carla and now Vicky in the office, I don't go there. Never did, no matter how much time I spent in Phoenix, no matter how much time, not in the office. Used to make the joke, disturbs the staff. It does. I never went there. Why? Too small of an office. I hear things. And I hear stuff that's not happening the way I would do it. And I'm going to be in it. Right? And I'm going to be working on it. And am I going to make it better? Yeah. Am I going to force them temporarily to do it exactly my way? Yeah. But the numbers are okay the way it is. So I leave them alone. I'm the macro manager and have been for years. I mean, there's stuff I couldn't tell you how it's getting done. You know, Vicki came in and, you know, Carl, to her credit, built her a monstrous procedure manual and everything the way it was being. She says, can I change? I said, I don't care what you change. Do it any way you want to do it. I don't even want to know. I'll fuss about it if, if my numbers go bad. But otherwise, I don't care. Move the furniture, make it blue, change the filing system. I don't care. The only, things I, the only mandate I got is we do refunds first thing in the day. That's the only mandate I got. Other than that, I don't care. Make the list different. Is it the way I do the list? No. Is it the way I, but, you know, so you got to let it be. Just like Chet has to be okay with a 52% close when he knows he could get 80. You know, and the carpet cleaning guy's got to be okay with the fact that they're not going to, move the heaviest piece of furniture in order to clean behind it. She's never going to know the difference. The guy they send out on the truck is going to clean around it. And he would move it. But to have a second truck, he's, so it's, this is emotional stuff more than it is practical stuff, you know. And you buy the time that you, to use the Gerber terminology, you buy the time to work on the business purely by not working in the business. Can't do both, right? Can't do both. Now, I've never, I won't say never, maybe four or five times in my entire life have I used a junior copywriter to do rough drafts for clients and then fixed it. I, always, I do that myself. That's working in the business. I have done it for my own stuff, by the way, but I haven't done it to clients. Okay? Um, but there are, there are people in my business who do, and it buys them time to work on the business because Something that I would bill at $30,000, you could pay a junior copywriter 3000 bucks to get you to rough draft, and it's perfectly acceptable. Uh, it's, it's, so you could fault me for that. Um, 
but you look for things that you can unload, that aren't deadly, that aren't fatal, you know, that aren't crippling. You know, I mean, in the tr transition and in the change now, and, and it's no, you know, there's some mistakes made, but you know, none of them are fatal, none of them are crippling, and, and, and none of them have affected my numbers. And it's all about the numbers. You've got to get yourself a herd. It ties to what we talked about earlier, the contact with the end user, you know, the customer. You've got to control the end user. In my type of business, which would affect Bert, Michael, Pamela, a lot of people in the room, in my type of business, there's a formula. 2,000 herd, million dollars plus a year. How many millions a year you want? It's as predictable as the day is long. Give me the 2,000, I'll get you the mill. Huh? <laughs> Net. Um, people in all kinds of businesses. Now, the exception to this is the high transaction value business where there's no lasting lifetime customer value and there's trade-offs pro and con to that. You know, the guy selling a $45,000 cosmetic dentistry case, uh, should he worry about putting people on a continuity program from mouthwash and toothpaste to $29 a month? The answer is no. Just go get another $40,000 deal. Okay. Um, but for the most part, uh, the surest wealth formula is a herd. Raving fans who will give you money repetitively for whatever it is that you do. And a lot of businesses understand focus on this principle. They they, they're based on the principle, they just don't really do it very well. Guy owns a chain of hair salons. What's that business all about, really? It's about the herd. It's about the customers who will come back month after month after month after month after month and not go anywhere else and come in there and get their hair done. It's about the herd. It's a herd business. Now, most people running it don't thoroughly get it. They kind of do, but they don't get it the way we get it. For example, they may be leaving the contact of the customer up to the stylus. If they're doing that, they don't understand the, the wealth is in the herd. Got to own the herd. The stylists are replaceable. What happens in the hair business, by the way, more often than not, because of this, stylist moves, takes customers with her. She's usually pretty successful at taking 70 or 80 percent of them. If the guy owning the salons was really doing his job, she'd barely get 20. Big difference. I've seen it both ways. I've had the same hairstylist, by the way, for 28 years. Longest relationship I've ever had with a woman. Um, I can't count the number of salons she's been in. I've lost track. Moves, 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 moves. Doesn't matter. I've trekked right along. So have a whole slew of her other customers. For the most part, you really need to focus on this. W. Clement Stone devised a system to build a herd. His business had renewable income. He was in the insurance business. You should either have big transactions, and then you don't care about this, 
or you should have renewable income and continuity income, or both. W. Clement Stone built, applied to philosophy, had a marketing, had a sales system, built a herd. Ultimately, he sold his herd for a ton of dough. I don't remember now what a GS paid for combined insurance companies of America, but big. The herd has value. Napoleon Hill never developed a herd. You asked me earlier, how many people have you influenced? God knows, Hill, millions, millions. They sell like 100,000 copies of the book every year by accident. No promotion, no nothing. Millions of people influenced. No herd. In our speaking business, there aren't 10 of me. But there's people who could be. Zig's one. Certainly far more people influenced by him than I would ever dream of. They love him more. He's more lovable. <laughs> Hadn't got a herd. Hmm? Only as good as tomorrow's gig. Any business where you're only as good as tomorrow's gig would scare me. Say, so a restaurant owner, how much business are you going to do today? I don't know. Depends on who comes in. Oh, no good. <laughs> Bad answer. Got to know ahead of time how many are coming in. You got to have some of them who bought membership cards that are dinging their card every month and shipping them five coupons for the meals they're going to come in and buy. I mean, you got to re-engineer that business. You got to have a herd. You got to have such a program for them, they're going to come in three times a week instead of one time a week. You got on and on and on and on. The, most, the best practical advice I can give you is continuity income, renewable income, build a herd. Fence them in. Keep them. Watch out for poachers. Mm -hmm. Take good care of them. Nurture them. Spend money on them a little. They'll support you in style. But the people without a herd are vulnerable all the time. Yes. Uh, is this on? Yeah. Uh, you mentioned one of the factors in your success was uh, your self-discipline. Uh, besides your upbringing, was there anything you did deliberately to develop more self-discipline? Anything we can learn about that? Is that psycho-cybernetics too, or what? Um, it beats starving. Um, <laughs> um, when you're short on talent, discipline's the best substitute. Um, um, when you're short on talent, discipline's the best substitute. Um, so, uh, but some upbringing, you know, as an aside, we've discovered a, a hiring secret. You and I have talked about it. Would you guys like to know yes. how to actually dramatically improve your chances of hiring somebody worth having? My clients and my platinum members and I have finally all agreed on a valid litmus test. Here it is. Don't hire anybody whose parents didn't run a business and the kid worked in the business. One more time. Don't hire anybody who didn't work in their parents' business. They were growing up, their parents had some kind of a small business, so restaurants real good because they worked long hours, 
they worked odd hours, they didn't get to go do some of the things that the other kids got to do because they had to work, it was grunt work, they didn't like it, uh, and, they, and they learned work ethic, and they learned discipline. And we were talking about this and talking about this and talking about this, and gradually it's so profound, it's so evident for every one of us in either the best people we've ever had or the only ones we've ever had worth keeping, uh, this is the commonality. Um, and so some of it was upbringing, but some of it was discovery. Hey, see, I, you know, John Carleton's deal that, you know, nothing in life, nothing on the planet would ever have happened without a deadline. You know, we must assume that God made the decision he was going to rest on the seventh day before he started the process. You know, <laughs> or presumably Earth would still be happening, you know. Um, so it's deadlines. I mean, I, you know, I'm disciplined, but I'm lazy. I mean, like anybody else, I get me into gear ain't the easiest thing on the planet. And so deadlines are what do it. I had a good day. I hope you had a good day. Appreciate your participation. Thank you very much. You've been listening to one of our gold members only podcasts. Make sure you upgrade and become a diamond member and get access to the diamond members only podcast as well. On top of that, you'll also get access to the whole enchilada with all dance courses and so much more. So make sure you upgrade to diamond now by going to diamondupgrade.com.